Mount Panorama, Bathurst, a 6.2-kilometre track that's become an icon of Australian sport. The only thing as legendary as the track itself are the drivers, who through pure will and endurance have etched their names into racing folklore. One of those Bathurst legends is six-time champion Mark Scaife. So, who better to take me on an old-fashioned road trip to Australia's most revered racetrack? When was the last time you drove to Bathurst? I can't remember the last time I drove to Bathurst. Years ago. It would be years ago. It was probably in the early days of HRT when all those lunatics wanted to drive from Melbourne. That's probably the last time I drove. Really? That's a long time ago. But you must have some nice memories of heading up there with your family, like as a young bloke with your dad? Oh, I only sort of in later years when I think the last day, last time Dad drove there was about 84, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I was sort of big enough and ugly enough to know what was going on and wouldn't be a pest around the pit area and all those things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, it was nice to go and do that. But I uh, might have been 83, actually, in his last drive. But it was just one of those ones where I... It's not a place... It's, it's not a place for kids. Like, it's just not a place to loiter if you if you're competing yeah, I mean it's a cool course. thing if you if you're up there on the hill and you you know you come to watch the event and do all the things that we like but um, if if you are there to be serious it's just it's just it's just not a family place but you must have I mean probably some of your earliest memories of car racing would be watching Bathurst on TV at home yeah yeah for sure I mean I, I was for me Bathurst was like Christmas morning. I would wake up like really early and I'd have the TV on. I think in those days it started at 7 or 7.30 or something and mm -hmm. the race started earlier than it does now. But um, I, I couldn't wait. And I even, I, you know, even the night before I battled to sleep. It was like, a, it was a, seriously, it was like a kid with Christmas. And, and the whole thing was just, you know, really powerful. I always, I mean, I went to university in Bathurst. So my memories of like getting in the car for that trip it was always there's certain points on the road trip where you would go okay I'm just that little bit closer like once you hit the foot of the Blue Mountains and then you get up over Blackheath and you come down Mount Victoria yeah and then once you got through Lithgow you knew it was just a long straight road and then the plane trees there as you enter sort of Bathurst was always really you knew you were there it evokes sort of a feeling yeah do you feel like that every time you, you go there? Oh, for sure. I mean, you think it's a little country town. You sort of take it as a little place you can go and spend some time there, but the reality is it just the car race puts it on the map. And then you think about this crazy racetrack that was a, a tourist drive, you yeah. know, in the 30s. So was, <laughs> the whole thing was, oh, let's make a cool drive up over the top of this hill uh, that's just turned into this immense event. And... I don't think there's another sporting event in Australia that probably <coughs> captures the imagination. There's no, there's no other sporting event like it in Australia where mm. people pack up their lives for a week and head up to, <laughs> you know, this little country town and it's very true. dig in and just lap it up. Everyone is just completely obsessed. Well, your word is pilgrimage, isn't it? And I think that's pretty, pretty appropriate based on what you just said. It's, well, because it's like religion. People, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, I had dinner with Tony Cochran just recently and we were playing through the deal to get the new pit area done mm. 
and the new pit area was, you know, it was roughly um, 25 million in those days, but it was it was a, a deal between um, Labor and Liberal government from federal and state that you could never get done. And the, the reason that you get deals like that done was not only was Tony pretty good at coercing money out of government, but <laughs> um, it was a fantastic... Um, project because what it did in the old days is that is the pit area was just atrocious. You see all that old vision of, you know, dilapidated old pit building and mm. everyone worked out of garages behind and then they brought their cars down into the into the pit lane and you know safety wise and the whole thing it was just nowhere near it in terms of the status of the event. So to be able to get Bob Carr from New South Wales Labor Party and John Howard from the <laughs> Liberal Party from a federal perspective to both chuck a bucket load of money in was was extraordinary mm. and now you go there and that's that's the thing that always grates me it's not just the mount panorama thing you actually drive up and it's got a world-class look about it now and it feel, didn't have yeah. that yeah. it feels like it too don't you think yeah i'm really i can't wait to see the wild cards mm. especially our international visitors mm -hmm do their first lap <laughs> because it's going to be, I mean, they're really well credentialed drivers as in Alexander Rossi and James Hinchcliffe, but I think one of the things about it is that they just, it doesn't matter how much simulation you do and how many videos you watch, until you arrive into Reed Park at about 200 kilometres an hour, the fence is next to you and you know that if you make a little mistake there, you go in there real hard. It's, uh, it's a racetrack with uh, serious consequences. One of the really daunting things about Bathurst is because it is so fast, you have to have a really healthy respect. So the thing that's daunting is that, say for instance, you know that you need to do roughly a, a six or a seven. Mm. That's the lap time that we are doing last year. When you arrive there and you do your first lap and you think you're half going it right, and you look down at the data <laughs> on, the, on the timing screen and it says two minutes 12. Jesus, what am I going to do now? And it's and it, and it's really vivid because you 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 know mm. you, like you think at that stage that you're trying pretty hard and you think that oh, I should be going faster than this, and then as it turns out, um, it's a, it's not only the track condition that's always dirty; it's a public road. Um, it's it's just you getting up to speed, yeah. and then honestly, by the time that you um, you know, get yourself through four or five runs and you get through the end of the first session and you're, then you're back doing sixes or sevens and it feels reasonably comfortable. And the next session is better again because the more familiar, familiarity, the more seat time and stuff, the better. We used to have a lot of fun. So I remember Neil Crompton, that was classic. So when Crompo drove in the GTR with us, Jimmy Richards and I, we always had a ritual. We'd have a beer of... Mm -hmm of a Saturday night or Friday night or whatever night we were on. Anyway, on the first night after practice, Crompo was seconds away and he was all dejected. <laughs> and he had that really, you know, that dejected look on his face. Oh, my, what am I going to do? You know, I'm miles away. And in the end, um, he uh, he says, you know, I need, to, I need to find three or four seconds. And Richo says, oh, look, the way that we can do this, mate, is we'll just... Back around here too. We'll... Um, we'll just get you organised with a couple of ales. <laughs> so anyway, we, we got him a beer and um, might have got him a second beer and then by the time he ran the next day, he was he was massively faster. So we always put it down to the, 
couple of twoies that we fed him <laughs> and the way that he was able to acclimatise. But the real story is that yeah. you just, the more time and the more confidence, it's such a confidence racetrack. And if mm. you, and if, and if you don't apply yourself with some sort of sensible, not too out of control yeah. um, mandate, you, well, you either hurt yourself yeah. or, or you put yourself pretty much out of the whole weekend. I mean, it would be really easy to have a crash at Bathurst in the early part of the weekend yeah. and be out for the weekend. How do you find the sweet spot between being brave, trying to extract as much as you can out of yourself, out of the car, but also having that sort of healthy respect for Bathurst? And when did you feel like you found that? Well, I didn't really get that until probably 1990. I reckon I was about a second or a second and a half slower than Jim Richards in 89 when we finished mm. third on the podium. And I reckon from 90 onwards, I, I got better and I ended up qualifying pole in 91. So mm. I, I, I got that by the time I got to that point. But you can't really explain it, Jess. You, your question around the complexity of that is really hard because a lot of it's really innate. A lot of it's... A lot of it is, is not looking at the data. It's actually the, dri the driver, as much as all the engineers and propeller heads will be talking about, you know, you've got to be faster at Skyline and you should be deeper into that corner and you should you know, use a different trajectory for whatever it is. All that is absolute crap because <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're the bunny in the chair. You're yeah. the one driving the car. So as it turns out, it's very hard to determine how much commitment you've got and, and therefore, what needs to be done from a, um, a commitment perspective can only ever come back to the driver. So if, if the engineer says to you, mate, you've got to be deeper at Skyline, and you go, oh, I can't be, because I'm the yeah. one with the wheel. I, I, I'm the one that knows that I'm on the edge of disaster. Mm -hmm. So that, that feeling of how close you are to having a crash, I, I don't think there's a... There's not another racetrack in Australia. I mean, Phillip Island on a really wild day is a bit like that. But but Bathurst, there's not another place that gives you that feel of going, whew, like a big deep breath and saying, wow, that was close. Mm. Yeah. Which is which is great. That's why it's so exhilarating. That's why, you know, that's why people jump out of planes and ride big waves and do all that mad <laughs> stuff. Bathurst is exactly the the race driver's racetrack. Mm. I can't remember recently, in the last five years, ever heading to Bathurst with so many of the field openly saying it's on. You know, that, that they're throwing caution to the wind in terms of the championship. Like for even Scott McLaughlin to have said, you know, he's obviously got a really healthy buffer in the championship, which gives him some more license, I guess, to take some more risks. But I can't remember so many of them openly coming out and saying that they're going to throw everything at it. They're going to take, you know, more risks than maybe they normally would to win it this year. Mm. Do you agree with that? Do you feel like it's been, they've been a bit more open about all of that this year? And that's obviously as a consequence of the championship, you know, being so narrow and Scott looking likely to to wrap that up. Yeah, I've, I've heard lots of comment and, I, and I've had lots of journos ask about what's the mentality of the respective parties because it's quite a strange season isn't it you think mm. about the dominance that Scott and the Mustang has had and at a point now where you've 
got almost two rounds lead. So yep. if you're Scott, what does that do? I mean, to me, that lets you off the leash. You should just go and do whatever you want to do. When you've got 600 points up... Is that dangerous, though? Might, well, if he had a 50-point lead, he'd have to think about the chairmanship too yeah. much. So to me, when you've got that sort of margin over the rest of the field, almost two rounds, you go, well, why don't I'll just put everything into this. Well, why wouldn't you want to... I mean, on his bucket list, he hasn't won Bathurst. No. So at the moment, I, I would be saying that that's actually a bigger danger for the field, given that that would, I would think, be his mindset. And then, and then conversely, Red Bull Holden Racing Team probably haven't had a car this year that's mm-hmm. been good enough to feature week in, week out. Their consistency hasn't been good enough. Often they haven't even been the fastest Holden. Mm. But their form late in the year, I thought their Ipswich form looked good. The, the performance at Pukekohe was much better. Yeah. And the aero improvement obviously now helps them. So to me, Holden go into Bathurst with a package that's capable of winning. And probably if you said through the course of history since teams weren't able to put their A drivers together, mm. they've probably assembled their best two-car driver lineup Easily, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, when you think about Shane's another one that hasn't ever won Bathurst and you pair him with Garth Tander, who's proven winner there, and he said, I think during the week he said that it feels like a caged tiger this whole year. He's had to sit on the sideline and watch on, you know, parked up before he would have liked to have been. And that in itself can be a dangerous thing too, right, when you have a co-driver who's feeling like he's got something out there that he wants to prove, but hungry for it too, mm. and super experienced. Mm. They'd have, they've got to be one of the hot favourites. They ha- Absolutely. This weekend. Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to separate mm. the Wind Cup, Lowndes, Van Gisberg and Tanda combos. I would... What does that do for a team, though, when you've got the entire garage really incentivised, invigorated, excited about what's to come, knowing that, as you say, they've sort of built into their form this year? Mm. And there's a little bit of aggro after Auckland, and they'll want to put that well behind them. Yeah, and I think... And bounce back. Well, the, the normal thing is <clears throat> that when you have two really good team cars, the workload for everybody goes up because mm. you're not focusing on one or the other. And then as a consequence, by the time you get yourself <clears throat> into the weekend and you know you've got to service both those cars properly, the overall demand on the team is higher. Um, um, but for, for all of the top teams, that's pretty much the case. So I, I think that Red Bull in particular this weekend they will have thrown more at it than they have for a long time. They know the driver combinations are strong. They know the cars have got better. They know there's nothing to lose in terms of where they are in the championship. Yeah. So all, all roads lead to 100% commitment from them. And I, I would think that given we've already spoken so much about not having sand down mm. and the propensity for teams to make a mistake this weekend is probably higher than normal, you'd have to think as a team that that bodes well for them. So when would they have started preparing for this week? I mean, it, it starts months ago. Um, I mean, in the old days, it started more than more than months. The you know the the ethos for someone like an Alan Moffat was 
winning Bathurst from day one, start of the year. Mm. And basically, it was a 365-day plan. As soon as Bathurst was over, how do you get organised for the next one? Um, these days, because the, the calendar's so tight and the rigour around racing within our calendar is, is hard, you can't dedicate too much resource too early because you've still got to go racing and you've still got to yeah. go and do all the normal things. But, I mean, we used to put a, a, a lap board up in the workshop and say, you know, 30 days to, to Bathurst and each day it was the countdown. And I used to like having the cars ready a week early. So you'd have everything done, cars on the ground, sitting there and every single little bit of meticulous preparation stuff mm. had to be done so even to the point of packing the truck because the inventory on the truck needed to be pretty much everybody needed to ensure that everything was there for the weekend that you know you didn't get to the garage and all of a sudden someone didn't bring whatever it was so the preparation the team talks the procedures the protocols the the, the workload it's a it's unbelievable it is so preparation focused and it's and it's not just about the cars it's about the people and and that's actually half the reason that I used to try to have everything ready early and because you could send people away like send people away yeah. for the weekend before yeah so they get a weekend with their family they've actually got a nice headspace you know all the things about sports preparation um, need to be observed and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that this whole week, David Reynolds will be reliving every single second of the week last year. Because what transpired on Sunday for him was as a consequence of what had happened for that entire week, right? 100%. Well, there you go. So his preparation pre-race was that he was losing weight and probably really didn't have enough sustenance. He's, he's probably, yeah. from a stamina perspective, probably wasn't quite as good as he should have been. What does Dave do differently this year? And not just from a physiological point of view, because obviously he's going to be better hydrated and he's going to take better care of himself in the lead up to Sunday. But I guess from a mental point of view, how do you put those demons to bed? So those demons, they will have been profound in the couple of weeks after. I, I think at the end of the day, they will have had a plan, not just around um, his physical preparation, but also around his mental preparation and getting over exactly what you just described. Now, I really felt sorry for him. I, 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 and I, as I said, I was very critical of the team not helping him. But at the same time, it is Dave's responsibility. And, and for me, he will be an interesting story this week. You know, your word all the time about the narrative it's an interesting tale to tell as to how he responds this weekend. Mm. How does speed translate year on year? Because for Dave, he's been really quick there mm. consistently for the last couple of years. How do you do that? Well, they will have had a, a base style set up <clears throat> that suits that location. So Alistair McVeigh is one of the brightest guys in pit lane. He and Dave work really well together. I, I think what they've been able to come up with so far is a package that works well there. Mm. Now, arguably, if there wasn't some parity adjustments this year, it probably wouldn't have been, be you know, it wouldn't have been good enough. It wouldn't have been better than last year. Mm, and given the Mustang is better than last year, everybody's had to step up. Mm. So you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking 
you've probably got to be faster than what they've ever gone this weekend. Right. If the conditions are yeah. relatively cool and, and it's reasonably cloudy and it's, it's not, not too much UV. Which is what's forecast. That, yeah. But we know that place can change pretty quickly. And Alistair and Dave have been really good at that for the last uh, couple of years in terms of what they, mm. what they like from the car, what Dave likes from the car. So that's, uh, you know, remember we raved about the three that Scott did. <laughs> the reason that he did a three was because because Dave did a low four. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, the, the lap times and the qualifying performance for both those guys that day was, uh, was extraordinary. I'll never forget that, standing in pit lane and every single person walked out of the garage and stood there and clapped Scott into pit lane. It was, you know, one of those sporting moments in Australia that you just... That'll be etched in my memory forever. And McLaughlin comes to the line. Yes! He's done. A two-minute 3.8. <laughs> that lap that day, Scott, you, if you actually go and look at the detail of the lap, it's one of the best laps ever there. Mm. So it should have been celebrated because there's, there's probably only been maybe six or eight of those laps in history yeah. at that place. I was watching mm. the end of the 2006 race with Rick Kelly and Craig Lowndes and such an emotional win for Craig in the year after Peter Brock's passing. And you you look at that, and, I mean, mm. for me that day I was out the first one kilometre, and you go, you know, that, that, that sort of race and the emotion on Craig's face when he out of the car was, was extraordinary I, and I hadn't seen that for a long time mm. so that was you know it was really really good really good to see. You were home by lunchtime that day weren't you? Oh, I was. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> you got on a, the tin sparrow and flew home that day you didn't have to make the long drive can you imagine? I was definitely not driving so yeah shortest price favourites um, <gasps> Winks odds front row of the grid pole your fastest every session. Fastest every session. The car was unbelievably good. There was so much pressure because we felt the pressure from all the Holden fans because of Peter Brock's yeah. legacy. Yeah. So the expectation was for us to qualify on pole and to win the race. And Garth and I were really happy with the car. The whole thing was fantastic. The clutch that we used in the car that year had won the race the year before. So, you know, there was no drama with the clutch, the whole thing. As it turns out, the clutch slips off the line. I was just probably doing 60 to 70 k's up Mountain Straight at the back of the field, or almost the back of the field. And Jack Perkins was behind another car. He flicked out to pass the other car and didn't see me and then crashed into the back of the car at the end of Mountain Straight. So that wrote that car off for the day. That was over and out. So I found my way back to the pit area and I'd coerced Jimmy Richards to drive for me again. I got, I got him a few times, so because <laughs> I'd always call him and say, mate, do you want to come and drive for us? <clears throat> and beer and money always does it for Richo, so you could always get him pretty easily. So the money part was always a lot more expensive, but um, Jim comes to drive, the previous year is with James Courtney. Courtney yeah. had a crash in the race this year. I come back down to the pit, I put my headphones on, I stand there with all the engineers. <clears throat> There's Richard Holway and Svano, Dave Spencer and the guys I said, come on, let's get our brain into this, we'll finish on the podium with Jimmy and Ryan Briscoe. And about 15 laps later, Richo hits the fence coming out of the dipper 
and we had both factory team cars out within 25 laps. And I said to Tony, I said to my wife, I said, Tony, grab that bloke with a chopper, and let's get out of here. So we were gone. We were, I was, I was drinking beer at my house in <laughs> Melbourne, watching the last sort of couple of hours of the race. I was definitely back by about two or 2.30. It was a shocking day. What was worse than all of that was having to report to the Holden board that week. What did you say? Well, well, A, you've got to apply science, so you have to say what's actually gone wrong with the clutch. And there's not a lot of data mm. in, in the clutch per, per se. Like if you just said one of the things around getting data around a clutch is really hard. Other than looking at all the pedal travels and um, and rev ranges and throttle positions and stuff, so anyway, it was pretty easy to work out that it was sleeping terribly. Um, but it was to have both cars out with before the end of the first stint was tragic. So, how old were you when you first went up to Bathurst to compete? My Early twenties. First, in my first year, I dad did a deal with Peter Williamson for me to drive at Bathurst in 1986. So I was 19, and Peter Williamson had a really big accident. It was before the chase mm-hmm. was put in, mm-hmm. and he had a really big accident in practice, um, wrote the car off, and ended up in hospital. Um, was quite seriously hurt in the time and um, so obviously then I, I was on the sidelines for the weekend but I you know I got a taste for it because I was up there and I mm. understood it I only did a few laps in the car before um, before Willow had the crash so I, I didn't really get a feel for it very much and then the next year I was lucky um, so 1987 so I was 20 and Fred Gibson, I'd moved, already moved to Melbourne and I was working in the workshop and we'd won the two litre touring car championship that they had with sort of Nissan versus Toyota mm-hmm. and a Nissan dealer had put some money in to drive with me at Bathurst in a Nissan Gazelle like a, a, a Japanese Nissan yep. Silvia. Anyway it was a great little car because it was a car that had really nice balance, but you had to sort of coax it to go fast because it didn't have lots of engine power. So a lot of your technique you couldn't be too harsh or forceful with. Mm-hmm. And okay, Amory Park, for instance, in the rain, when Jimmy Richards and Longhurst were in BMW JPS BMWs, I was like third fastest in the rain. Like of, of the whole field, <laughs> so like the, the car was just fantastic. It's in the same category as the two and a half liter BMW M3s, mm-hmm. and the M3s were the gun little car of the day. And all the superstars had come out from Europe: mm-hmm. Roberto Rivalia, Manuel Ipero, Johnny Giacotto, Gianfranco Brancatelli, like a thousand of these gurus. And Jimmy Richards also mm-hmm. was in those cars as a JPS. BMWs. So they continue to get faster and faster and faster and faster. So I qualify, my time qualifies me for the race, but I had to be within whatever there was, the percentage 105% or 107% or something. So 
my co-driver couldn't. So as they got faster, he was now out, which meant that we couldn't start the race because we didn't have a co-driver actually qualified. Right. So I put his helmet on <laughs> and go out and qualify for him. And did anyone... No. Who's your co-driver? Dale Jarrett. Young bloke who was a Nissan dealer from South Australia. So his helmet on. <laughs> In those days, you can come straight off the track and drive the car into the garage. Drive straight off into the garage. Drop, roll the door down, out. No one ever knew. No. And you got in. You qualified got in. it. You got in. Yep. <gasps> no How one ever. That? <laughs> <laughs> and so, where did you finish the race? <laughs> well, it was a bit of a shocker because it overheated on the opening lap. <laughs> oh no! But it didn't matter because it was just experience yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. So it didn't really matter. We were, we were never going to go any good against all those BMWs. But <gasps> but it was great. Yeah, it was great. In the end, so Jim Richards was the fastest of all those superstars. He beat them all. Wow. Like, he's just a remarkable. I mean, talk about people who can drive. He can seriously. He's one of the best drivers I've, I've ever seen in my life. Unbelievable. And he was really your tutor at Bathurst, right? I mean, to have been in the earliest part of your career and to have an opportunity to go up there and partner with him and learn from him. What did he teach you about Mount Panorama? He probably taught me... Well, he used to separate the track up into three different zones. So he taught me to be a bit more basic about learning it, which I thought that was really good intel. It was mm. really good mentorship. And one of the great things about Richo, Jess, is that I could ask him anything and he would tell me the truth. Now, that, that's just unheard of in car racing. Mm. Um, our rapport is such that, you know, he's 20 years older than me, but we, we get on like we're brothers. And I could ask him, so mate, are you flat there or are you having a little break or are you back to fourth at that corner or do you attack it from the left-hand side of that one or are you just cheat that corner and sacrifice it or mm. you know what do you what do you what do you do there he would honestly every time just tell me the truth it was unbelievable so he, he helped me with Bathurst because in 89 I, I was a bit slower than him and we finished on the podium um, and 89 at Sandown I was almost as fast as him so I, I felt like on a more basic track I was almost there yeah but Bathurst I still wasn't and then he gave me this sort of idea of separating the track up a bit and this is before we had data so we didn't have data to go and look at so that's the that's the hard part is because you might have been trying too hard in one zone and not hard enough in another um as it turned out by the time we got to 1990 and the start of data acquisition start mm. of, of us being able to look at the cars properly um i then I learned a lot also because I could I could see what he was doing. I mean, he was a maniac. We had such fun. I mean, he just, he would say to me, we'd be talking about a corner, and he'd say, I reckon, I reckon we can get through there flat. He said, why don't, why don't you give it a go? Why don't you give it a go and see if we can get through there flat? And if you don't crash, I'll, I'll give it a go. And what would you say? Uh, so he used to call me guinea pig. So then, <laughs> and then anything... Anything that was new on the cars, like the boys would say, 
oh, we've got this new front upright, or we've got this new, we've got to try this. And he'd go, give it a guinea pig first. <laughs> give it a guinea pig. <laughs> he used to treat me like the, you know, the test driver. And the, and the whole thing around Richo was so great that he, um, he, he always had a, a, a sense of fun about him. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the great things with Jim also was that his level of um, commitment to driving anything, anything that had four wheels, mm. he was just he was just unbelievable. 91, 92, such monumental moments in the history of the sport, but Bathurst in particular. And for you to be there, so young and impressionable, and I guess thirsty to learn from, you know, these gurus. We talk about that photo in 1990, where you know there's just so many legends of the sport yep. in one shot. You know, Alan Moffat, Pete Brock, Glenn, young Glenn Seaton on the end, Neil Crompton on the other end, uh, you know, young face Mark Scaife right in the middle of it all. Did you, in that moment, actually understand how special that era was? Um, I didn't at the time, but I reflect on it now. And I probably reflected on it even three or four years later than that because it was pretty much when Johnson and Brock were starting to get into that phase of, of retirement. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was really lucky. If you think, I mean, as a young bloke, to have raced against Colin Bond, Jim Richards, Alan Moffat, Alan Grice, mm-hmm. Dick Johnson, you know, I mean, Larry Perkins, all those superstars, that was, and arguably those guys are as good, if not better, than any of the people that are in the current field. So the, the strength of the field in those days was unbelievable. And that, although the average age was older, it was no problem. I mean, Peter Brock was 53 in the last year that he and I drove together in, in 1997. Mm. Jim Richards out-qualified me at Bathurst when he was 55. <laughs> I mean, seriously. So it, it's... It's pretty special when you look at that photo and you and you mm. do look at the young blokes, you see Glenn Seaton and Longhurst and yeah. Croppo and, and Brand Johns on the end. <laughs> um, you know, those those um, talents of the day, whether it was Larry Perkins or whatever, they were, you know, very, very powerful uh, in the industry of, of the of the time. When you look back in all of those kind of milestone moments, ninety two, I mean we talk about it a lot and Jimmy up there on the podium and this is going to remain with me for a long time you're a pack of assholes in your entire career there mustn't have been a moment like that absolutely not ever I, the thing that really got Jim Richards that day was actually a very similar thing yeah Jim Jim we knew how dangerous that day was I, I don't remember a more dangerous event it rained so hard, and at 300 kilometres an hour, you couldn't see two car lengths in front of you. Mm. And and for Jim to have crashed out on slick tyres in in such torrential conditions, and his mate, yeah. Denny Holm, who was the 1967 world champion, had passed away that day. All he wanted, Jess, was for people to actually put their hands together and say, well done. Yeah, you survived. Yeah, well, well you survived. Yeah. You, you you should have won the race. You, you led the race the whole day. Yeah. And the reality was that you didn't need to be on 
Ford, Holden, Nissan's bandwagon, BMW's bandwagon, whatever it was, you just needed to celebrate sport on that day. Mm. And he, he was left, he was mortified by their reaction. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't believe the reaction of the public. And that's, that's why he was so vocal. I, I understand that to win in a Nissan wasn't as popular as winning in a Holden or a Ford of the day, but I, I still I couldn't wrap my brain around just the genuine sporting endeavour of that day. Yeah. I mean, that, Jess, I, I can't explain how wild it was. It was so wild. Crompo didn't go, go over well when he gave them all the bird. So he and Anders Olsen. I can't even imagine that. Neil Crompton up yep. there. Yeah, well, he's an, he was an angry young man, don't you worry. The so. so when you're watching all of that go on around you, so Crompo goes out there and gives everyone the bird, DJ's given his version of events and a spray, and then Jimmy responds to the way that he did. What do you do? Because I know that you're not a spectator most often in these scenarios. <laughs> well, I'm so glad I was because... <laughs> When, well, I was already at the back of the podium filling up my jacket to throw beer cans back. So I. Why so, did you think that would be a good idea? No, well, I'm filling my jacket. I'm, I'm Tui's with the sponsor of the day, so I'm filling the pockets up. And Jimmy says, Scavey, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to throw a few back. He said, no, 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 no don't do that. He, he couldn't stop me fast enough. He said, no, I'll handle it, I'll handle it. Well, then 30 seconds later, he's called them a pack of assholes. You should have seen the amount of cans coming. My God. There were cans coming from everywhere. It was like, they were like missiles. So I wasn't too too happy about that scenario. And then when, I mean, there were so many really disgraceful, I mean, it was just disgraceful. The reaction from the crowd, I, I can't remember anything so volatile. And, I mean, Leon Daphne's wife, so the boss of Nissan, CEO of the day, his wife, Kerry, was at the back of the crowd hitting Ford and Holden fans with her Nissan umbrella. <laughs> like, that's how volatile it was. We had security people. How did you get out of there? We had all these security people. We had to lock all the front and rear roller doors down. You know, like it was wild. It was really wild. I'll tell you what, I reckon if the same thing happened tomorrow, he'd say exactly the same thing. I don't, I don't think he regrets it at all. In fact, even when we won it 10 years on, and for him to say, you know, you're a pack of beautiful people or wonderful people or whatever, he, he knows that, you know, there was, there was this make good. So that was 2002. When we won again. And, yeah. that was, and that was so fantastic. And it was a year where the wind was, was incredibly strong. It was blowing annexes over and blowing tents down. And it had already put Craig Lowndes and Neil Crompton out of the race with plastic bags over the front of their mm. Falcon. And that was a year where our car speed was fantastic, but the plastic bags over the front of the car, the water temperature was out of control. I had to do effectively qualifying laps all the way across the top of the hill to go fast enough to stay in the lead, but not use the engine so hard so it didn't overheat. And it was right on the cusp. Everyone in the Tom Walkinshaw was in the garage. Tony was in the garage. She was she was panicking. Everyone was panicking. And Could you feel that? Whatever, I got over the radio. Well, because Jeff's go, oh, we might we might have to stop. And I, I said, no way, are we going to stop? <laughs> so, so if the team said to me, Scavey, got to back it off. We're going to run second, or 
we've got to back it off, we're going to bring it in. There was absolutely no way. No way in the world. We were pressing on till the chicken flag whatever happened. If it fried the engine, if it destroyed the car, it wouldn't have mattered one Zach. It's Australia's biggest race and it was serious. So I said to Jeff and everybody on the radio, stop talking, stop talking, no more talk, no more talk. So with no more chat and about the last five laps got home. And Mark Scaife will go back to back at Bathurst. He secures another Australian touring car title. The whole notion of back to back at Bathurst is something extraordinary in itself when you think about how hard it is to turn up year on year and be, you know, the best prepared, the fastest, all that stuff. And that was something you were able to achieve a number of times. Was it something that you contemplated, you know, when you won it in 91, going back there in 92 and then again, you know, later on? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think what you learn from winning it, so I was 24 when I won the first one mm. and I was, I was still young and immature as a race driver, so I, I didn't, it wasn't, it was great to win clearly, but it, it wasn't really profound until sort of a few more years in. Mm. But what it does when you do win it, it almost just gives you a feeling of knowing what it takes to win. And that, I know it sounds really simple, but it's a little bit like the championship. You, you almost have to know how to win. And, and some days it takes raw speed and crazy lap times and massive aggression and real commitment. Other days, it's almost, you have to use your head so much to work out this mad chess game of mm. how you win the race to, to determine the time that you have to go or the time that you actually have to make a, a really crucial pass. I mean, for me, in 2002, passing Stevie Richards at the restart was the only way I could win because if I stuck behind him, it would have overheated and I was stopped. Yeah. And that was probably one of the most pivotal passes I made in my career. Same thing in 2005 with Jason Richards. He was probably faster in some zones of the racetrack. I got a great run on one particular lap. I knew if I didn't get him on that lap, I was never going to get him. And that's the difference, do you think, for a champion at Bathurst in those moments? 100%. You have to have that 100%. will to win at all costs, take that extra risk. Yeah, I think there's been a, a bit of a mandate through history that finishing Bathurst is is, is, a, is obviously a massive part and it's... But you don't go there just to finish. No, that's right. And what's happened is now that it's part of the championship, everybody said that was going to change the nature of the event. That hasn't done that at all because the status and the tradition of the event is so high, it's our grand final, that everybody just has a level of desperation. And, and it's almost everyone sort of grows another leg. You know, the, the, mm. there's everyone's got this this feeling of of the grand final. Every, everyone knows what it means and what it takes and how hard it is to win. Do you ever have a sense of it on the day? Have, did you ever have a moment through any of the, the six victories where you knew this uh, is it's going to be our day? Uh, I, yeah, a little bit. I, I think in 2002 I probably did. In 2010 I, I, I thought our pace was good enough to win it that day also. When you drive in I often say, what will today bring? And and it's very much like that, you know, you you can have days there where things just happen the right way and you go, mm. wow, how cool is that? 
and then other days, you know, I've, arguably there are races that I've driven there that I've that I've actually driven as well, if not better, and haven't won. Yeah. So it's that it, it's it's that sort of event. It's 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 a punishingly it's a punishingly cruel. You know, you've heard me say many times the the race is so easy to lose and so hard to win, and that's that's exactly what it's like. What's the one that still burns you? I haven't got one. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, 90, 98 with Lowndes when we were leading by 40 seconds and it popped a tyre in the chase when we really should have won. Uh, 97 with Brock. After Lowndes crashed when we were racing each other, I thought, no way, we're not going to be beaten today. 95 when we'd almost lapped Perkins and Ingle and we had one less stop to do than everybody I thought for sure and then it broke a tail shaft I mean yeah there's, there's, a, there's a lot of those when you think back to what it used to be like you know how unsafe the circuit was <laughs> but even just you know so many great images of you know the pit stops Having a can of Coke. Yeah. Cut lunch in the <laughs> glove box in the front. Oh, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Well, that 1973 pit stop with Alan Moffat, where yeah. they chuck a can of Coke over <laughs> to Fred Gibson, he drops the can of Coke, <laughs> then decides to open it up in Moffat's face and sprays it all over his glasses. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. And what do you think? Where does sport, you know, we all talk about hydration and Dave's <laughs> fitness from last year. When was the last time at half time everyone's sitting around having a Coke? <laughs> it's probably a fair while ago. Yeah. He even had a spin in that year. So Moffat spun yeah. at turn two, a full 360, <laughs> and went on to win the race. I mean, you could, it's a bit like Scott McLaughlin's spin yes. at Pukakoe. Absolutely. You could have that spin <laughs> 10 times, and nine times you write the car off. So he got away with it. But you, your point about the race and some of the great stories I mean Fred Gibson tells a great story when he rolled the GDHO Falcon over uh, back in Ford factory days and they used to put in here in the console yeah. they used to put fruit salad so when what do he you mean like cut cut like watermelon like pineapple cut fruit. stuff cut fruit in there in there and because you know we talk about how physical the race is they you drive up the straight, you know, a bit of water bowl, decided to do Can all you this imagine? Oh, oh, there you go. So I, I, I bag them. So I, ha I have a lunch with all those guys every year, maybe one or two. Yeah. And I call it the older I get, the faster I was lunch, right? And they tell great <laughs> stories. But it's it's great. It's 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 all of those sorts of stories. There's a, there's a great story. And I, I, now, I don't know whether this is an urban myth, but Fred Gibson reckons it's absolutely right. Okay. Is that Doug Chivers... So this has never been heard. Is that Doug Chivers? He was a mad smoker. Right. So he would drive past the pits. He'd have a smoke. He'd drive past the pits, hold the smoke down, <laughs> go past the control tower, turn up out, out of Hell Corner, <laughs> have a little gasp, but going back up. Are you up kidding? The, no, they reckon it's absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. Obviously, the physicality is so different today, but yeah. But, but also, having said that, those guys did 500 miles mm. sometimes by themselves. So, you know, extraordinary. You needed the cigarette to get through it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little gasper. Welcome to Bathurst, Marks. Okay, you made it. 
Thank you, Jessica. You've had a good time, I haven't have. you? I, I have. It's been nice. Yeah. It's been very nice. You've done a really good job. You show a lot of potential. I haven't hit anything. <laughs> it's always good. <laughs> haven't got a speeding fine. Tell you what, though. It's a very nice drive in the Porsche Cayenne. It is very nice, actually. It's very nice. I do like it. I, I could see one of these in my garage. I, 